All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. Um, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to continue our series in the book of Jonah this morning. So we're going to be going over to the book of Jonah. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 774, 775, um, the book of Jonah. We're going to be looking at chapter 4 this morning. Um, I've been rereading C.S. Lewis's the, the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, love those books and uh, um, been working my way back through it after I realized it had been probably a little over a decade since I had read them. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm currently working through The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which I think is the fourth one in the series. And, um, and so context, if you don't know anything about these stories, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is, is the most famous of uh, the stories. Um, and uh, in it, four kids uh, get transported through a wardrobe to a magical place called Narnia, and they become kings and queens of Narnia and help dispel a white witch, um, all with the help of Aslan, uh, a giant lion who basically is the Christ figure in the stories, who lays down his life to redeem the kids. It's pretty awesome. In, um, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lucy and Edmund, two of the kids, are visiting their cousin Eustace Scrub. And you can tell a lot about his character just from his name. Um, he is a scrub. Uh, he is a single child, and uh, he, he is very spoiled and unpleasant. Uh, one day, he comes in and is basically just getting after um, the, the Pavensi children, and, and there is a picture on the wall of a ship on uh, a sea, and it just suddenly comes to life, swallows them. They find themselves swimming in an ocean and have to be rescued by this ship. Uh, Eustace isn't enjoying this journey at all. Uh, Lucy and Edmund are thrilled to be back in Narnia. Uh, Eustace, on the other hand, is stubborn, selfish, um, manipulative, deceptive, angry at the world. He's angry at life. He's angry at others. He's angry at his discomfort. He is angry that he has been forced into an adventure he didn't want. He's angry. He's just angry. And he's always the victim. As, uh, as angry people often are. Uh, life is conspiring against him. And, and for Eustace, the, the story arc kind of peaks when uh, they land on an island and, and everyone is working really hard to repair the ship, gather supplies, and he just feels like he deserves a break of all the people on the ship. He, he just deserves a break. And so he goes and finds a glen in which to rest, where he finds a dead dragon. A sudden storm comes up, drives him into a cave. He discovers, of course, the dragon's wealth, because we all know dragons love gold and hoard it. And he um, finds a, an armband that fits his arm, and he is just thinking about how wealthy he suddenly is. And he goes to sleep on a pile of gold coins as soft as a pillow and awakens as a dragon. It's a very unpleasant uh, realization for him, and at first he, he realizes, man, I'm powerful, I can go scare everybody, I can get back at them, and pretty soon he realizes it's a very isolating life, and he's very lonely. Um, he can't communicate, he can't talk, he, he, he can't help, he's, he, he, he's not happy. Uh, and he comes to the realization through this process that his, his current outer appearance as a dragon reflects his his previous inner experience, that he was a dragon on the inside. He was vile and mean and ugly and, and selfish, um, that the kids that he had previously thought were all attacking him were, in fact, being very, very gracious to him. Like, he has this real character 
development, right? Um, and so then Aslan, the great lion, shows up and, and uh, leads him off to a pool and, and basically says, hey, do you want to be a boy again? And Eustace is like, more than anything. And he says, okay, then get into the pool and wash, but first you have to take off your clothes. And he's like, what do you mean my clothes? And he looks and he has a dragon body. And he's like, oh, hey, I'm a dragon. It's like a snake. I can... I can molt, right? So he takes his claws and he starts going after his skin a little bit and he pulls off and he's like, yes! And then he's like, wait, I'm still a dragon. So he does it again. And he has the same realization, I'm still a dragon. So he does it again. After the third time, he realizes it's pretty hopeless. He can't take it off. He can't change himself. He can't free himself. And finally, Aslan says, do you want help? which is always a compelling question. Jesus asked that a lot. He would find sick people and he would say, do you want to be made well? And we're reading through going, well, duh, of course they want to be made well. But the reality is a lot of people are sick because they don't want to be made well. Um, Eustace has gone through a character change to the point that he's like, no, I, I really want to be set free. So Aslan's like, I can take those off of you, but it's not going to be pleasant. So Eustace lays down on his back, exposing his soft underbelly. Aslan takes out his claws, plunges them into his chest. Eustace says it's the most pain he's ever experienced in his entire life. Feels like his very heart has been pierced and he's going to die, but he lays there anyway because he knows it's his only hope to be set free. So Aslan then rips him from top to bottom, tears it open, and out climbs a bright and shiny Eustace scrub. Aslan tosses him playfully into the water, washes him, clothes him, and sends him back, a brand new boy, to the other children. Uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful story. Why am I telling it to you? I'll tell you later. We're looking at Jonah. <laughs> we are looking at Jonah chapter 4. We will come back to that story a little bit later. All right, I'm going to read all of Jonah chapter 4. Uh, we read the first uh, four verses. Um, as kind of the conclusion of last week's sermon, for context, uh, Nineveh has just repented, right? Jonah went in with a, a simple five-word message, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be turned, and, uh, and they did. So starting in chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under the shade till he should see what would become of the, the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from the discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, 
and also much cattle. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so today we come to the end of the book, right? And what a strange ending it is. Um, One of the reasons I absolutely love the Bible, uh, it's just real. It's just real. When you read other ancient civilizations' literature, Man, it is, it, is, uh, it is just propaganda. It, it, they, they take their, their heroes and they turn them into demigods. They take they, all they list are all of their victories and they're all decisive and, and they were all glorious and everything was good, right? Um, you read through a book like this and, and really the whole, the whole Bible reads like this. It's pretty phenomenal. It is just absolutely honest. In this story, I don't know if you've noticed it, but everyone obeys the Lord. Everyone obeys the Lord. But Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, right? Seriously, the storm obeyed the Lord. The fish obeyed the Lord. The plant obeyed the Lord. The worm obeyed the Lord. The wind obeyed the Lord. Even the the pagan Phoenician sailors obeyed the Lord. Even the Assyrian Ninevites obeyed the Lord. Everyone but Jonah. Jonah starts out as a rebellious prophet running the other direction. Then he becomes a reluctant prophet, delivering a message he doesn't want to deliver. And now he becomes the resentful prophet, sitting outside of the circle of God's blessing, resenting the blessing. After delivering a message and a whole city responding, Jonah walks out of the city onto the East Hill uh, to watch from a distance. We assume this is still within the 40 days. I think he's still hopeful, right? Still hopeful. Yet 40 days. Maybe you'll be destroyed yet. You know, maybe, maybe you'll go back to your violence and, and maybe God will judge you yet. He is nursing his wound. He is sitting on the hillside. His, his pride is hurt and he is sitting there in his resentful bitterness. Now, this chapter is bookended by two questions, two compelling questions that really kind of hijacked me this week as I was sitting in this chapter and studying. Um, the first one is in verse 4, where God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? Now, what's interesting is after the first question, Jonah doesn't answer. Jonah just kind of turns on his heels and is like, Bleh. walks out of the city, sits on the hillside right? I'm not even, we're not talking about this. I'm not even, right? He leaves the city to go mope and, uh, and to watch, hopefully, that they might still be destroyed. Um, now, to give you a little bit of a context, this is hot and arid country. This would have been an incredibly uncomfortable uh, place, right? It's, a, it's 110 degrees typically during the day. Uh, similar to Phoenix, Arizona, if you've ever been to the southwest, um, beautiful but hot. You're like, yeah, Steve, but it's like a dry heat. You're right, so is your oven. Um, it's not a comfortable place to sit, right? My friends still send me videos of them actually frying eggs on the blacktop, of actual blacktop melting underneath the tires of their car. Uh, it gets hot and it is uncomfortable, right? So Jonah is sitting there and so he builds himself a booth, which was basically a temporary shelter, a temporary tent that would be built out of dried fronds that would have fallen from some of the trees. Um, and, and would have provided a certain amount of, of protection from the sun, right? Now, it would have been a little bit stifling because they were closed in and, and it would have had to continually be repaired because these were dried out fronds. They didn't have a lot of substance to them. Uh, so it wasn't meant to be a permanent shelter. It was just meant to give, the, give, him, give him a little bit of, of relief, right, to keep the sun off of him. While he's sitting there, God does this incredibly gracious thing. God grows up a living plant, a shade plant, over the top of him. Um, what kind of tree was it? 
who cares? It, it is a shade plant. Um, I don't, it's, we fight about the weirdest, this is, this was interesting to me, Augustine and, and uh, um, uh, I can't remember his name right now, there were two fathers of the faith. They went to war basically over this, arguing about what kind of tree grew up over them. I'm like, seriously guys? Um, so it's a tree, it's a shade tree, a big tree, who cares what kind of tree, um, but it gives him shade, and, and, and he just takes joy in it, right? Because this thing comes up, and, and unlike the dried-out fronds, these are living fronds, which give much better shade. It, it apparently is, is large enough that it, that it creates a cool spot for him, um, and, um, and it allows him to kick up his feet and resent all of this in comfort, right? I mean, that's, that's what he wanted. It's like, I get to chill and be angry in, in comfort, right? Um, in verse 6, there are some interesting um, uh, things to highlight here. Uh, it, it said that, that, that the Lord made this plant come up over Jonah, that it might shade his head to save him from his discomfort. The word discomfort there um, means uh, evil or calamity or discomfort. Again, the author is, is playing with his irony. God caused this plant to rise up to save him from his evil. It, it is God's grace, right? Where is most of Jonah's discomfort coming from? Is it from the sun? Not a chance. Most of his discomfort is coming from his heart. Most of his discomfort is coming from his resentment. Most of his comfort is com- discomfort is coming from his, his anger. And God causes this plant to rise up to give him relief from his discomfort, not just the sun, but, but to give him a, a moment of peace where he can be resentful um, without the external discomfort of the sun. And then the next phrase, it says, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Um, he is exceedingly glad. Um, this literally means that, that Jonah rejoiced over the vine with great rejoicing. That's what it says in the Hebrew. Jonah rejoiced over the vine with great rejoicing. Um, the vine caused Jonah to experience an emotion that he hasn't experienced anywhere else in this entire book. Gladness, right? Jonah, Jonah was relieved when he was saved by the fish. He, he, he probably had a, a, a moment of, oh, I'm still alive when he got vomited up on the shore, right? But, but nowhere in this entire book has it said that he has experienced this exuberance, this bubbling gladness till now. Right? God in His grace gives him this plant to shield him from his discomfort, and he has within him this rising, bubbling, glad- like for the first time, he's like, yeah, this is more like it. This is, this finally, finally, right? A little bit of comfort. Is that too much to ask? Right? You've used me badly. You've sent me to do this thing I didn't want to do. You forced my hand. Thanks for a little bit of comfort in the midst of it, right? He, he feels uh, joy. This vine. Hmm. Um, Jonah received God's grace in the, in the form of the, the plant. Uh, Jonah took great joy in it um, and then quietly used that grace to justify his anger and to settle in more comfortably into his resentment. Right? God gives him a grace and instead of that grace becoming a trigger for repentance and for gratitude, it just becomes a reinforcement of his entitlement and helps him settle more comfortably into his resentment. I'm right. I'm right. Finally getting a little of what I deserve, right? 
All right, here's the thing with God's grace. Here's the thing with God's grace. God's grace is always given with a purpose, and it's seldom the purpose we think, right? Listen, this might be revolutionary for some of you. For some of you, this is going to be really, really old news, but but here it is. God's grace is not given to you to make you happy. God's greatest goal is not your happiness. Now, you're like, wait a minute, Steve. Wait a minute. I'm an American. Happiness is my constitutional right, right? I am, I am obligated by, by the Constitution. I am obligated by my citizenship in this great country to pursue happiness endlessly, right? That is my job. So, of course, God wants me to be happy. No, He really, he really His goal is not for you to be happy. His goal is for you to be holy. God's grace isn't given to you to make you happy. God's grace is given to you to make you holy. God's grace isn't given to you to make you feel good. That's not His goal. God's grace is given to you to set you free to be what you were created to be. God's grace isn't given to you to soothe your pain. God's grace is given to you that you might grow out of your pain. You're like, dude, God's a total killjoy. Nah, (laughs) nah. You need to realize joy is the outflow of holiness, true joy, true, lasting, transcendent joy is is what flows out of being what we were created to be, being comfortable in our own skins and comfortable with the God who created it, right? Actually being being who we're supposed to be and and being molded into the image of of what we were designed to be, that's where true joy flows, right? So, So yeah, God wants us to be happy, but happiness is a byproduct of holiness, True joy is what flows out of us as we are being transformed and changed to be what we are created to be. And yes, we will find deep comfort for our sorrow and for our woundedness. Our goal, though, isn't just to find that, that, that comfort, right? God is not the great anesthesiologist of the cosmos coming and trying to just comfort your pain. He is trying to cure you of what's causing your pain. He wants you to grow in such a way that you're no longer inflicting this pain on yourself. And we see this lesson made very, very clear in this chapter in pretty short order, right? At dawn the next morning, God who appointed the plant to grow up, and it is interesting that terminology, God appointed a fish to swallow him, he appointed a plant to grow up, he now appoints a worm to destroy it. right? He sends a cutworm or whatever it is to go in and destroy the roots and that thing's dead, right? Jonah gets up the next morning and it's like, what? Really? Really? And then God makes it worse because he appoints an east wind. So he kills the plant and then he calls up the east wind. Verse 8 calls it a scorching east wind that made him faint. It's easy for us to read over that and be like, yeah, I've been in the hot. You know, it was uncomfortable, I'm sure. It was just, he's just a little more grumpy, right? All right, so the east wind that's being described here actually has a name in this region of the country. It's called the Sirocco. Um, And when this wind hits, man, it's bad. The temperature suddenly spikes. The humidity suddenly drops. It is a constant and extremely hot wind filled with fine particles of dust. It contains constant hot air so full of positive ions that it affects the level of serotonin and other brain neurotransmitters. 
so that you will, you will feel extreme exhaustion, depression, feelings of unreality, and manifest yourself in bizarre behavior. This is serious stuff, right? The scorcher is not just an unpleasantly warm wind. It, it, it's a really, really uncomfortable situation, right? God, Jonah's discomfort went from, I'm unhappy, to I want to die, right? It went from about four to a ten, right? And it was made worse because he just had shade, and God killed it. Hmm. I, God seems a little mean to me at this point. I mean, just let's admit it, right? It's like Jonah's uncomfortable, and he's sitting out there, and he's hurting, and he did what God asked him to do, and, and, and now he's sitting out, and, and God's like, hmm, here's a plant to give you some comfort. Ah, I see your great joy in that plant. I see your great joy in that comfort. I'm taking it away. It's mine. And I'm going to make it worse. Here's a wind. A wind that is going to exhaust you and bake you and, and, and just make you writhe on the hillside. Sometimes God just seems mean. And it's then that God shows back up with the same question. Hey, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Tell you what, I'll, I'll modify the question a little bit, make it easier for you. Do you do well to be angry about the plant? All right, let's not talk about the city. Let's not talk about the people yet. Let's, let's not even, won't even approach me yet. Let's just talk about the plant. Do you do, you do well to be angry about the plant. And this time, Jonah in his exhaustion, Jonah in his despair, Jonah in his pain, Jonah answers, yeah, I do well to be angry. Yeah, I'm angry enough to die. I'm done. I'm just done. I am done with this place. I am done with these people. I am done with this job. I am done with this life. I am done with you. I'm ready to just die. <laughs> then verses 10 and 11 conclude the book with a series of questions. I mean, this is just odd right? We get to a point, it's like Jonah's in this critically, this place of just despair that God just made worse. And then he shows up and he's, all right, we've got a teaching moment. <laughs> Let me leave you some questions. You know that plant that you did absolutely nothing to cause to grow? You did absolutely nothing to earn its shade. You did absolutely nothing, but you enjoyed its presence. Now you have pity and compassion on the plant. Now you feel sorry for the death of the plant. You feel you, like you have a right to its benefit. You, that plant that died. Really? You, you really? You think you have a right to be angry about that? Really? And you think you have a right to be angry about 120,000 people who died, who wouldn't die, who, who have been delivered? You have, you have a right to be angry. You're angry about a plant that died, but you're not, you're, you're not taking joy on 120,000. You're angry that they weren't destroyed. 120,000 people created in my image. You're angry. What about the cattle, dude? Like, the very last question, and, and many cattle. I love that. All right, so you're not angry about the people. Do you at least have any sympathy for the cattle? 
right? The collateral damage, Fido and, 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 and all these other… Do, do you not have any sympathy? And then the book ends. That's it. It's pretty abrupt, right? I mean, that's it. That, that's where we're left hanging. It has led some critics to argue that the rest of the story has been cut off and that it's been lost to us, uh, that, that somehow um, this story has been, been uh, either pieced together in a, in a way that left it incomplete or we lost a part of it. And, I, you know, that just is silliness. There's absolutely no chance in the world. This book is brilliantly designed. And this ending is absolutely intentional. Jonah was left with a series of questions that would pierce his pride and wound his soul. Jonah is asking, God is asking Jonah a series of questions. And at the heart of it is a single question, y'all. At the heart of it is a single question. Jonah, are you right to be angry at me? Jonah, do you really feel justified in your anger at me? I'll shroud it. We'll talk about the plant, but I'm the one that appointed the plant and took it away. I'm the one that raised up this city and created these people, and I'm the one that's saving these city and these people. Do you have a right to be angry at me? Now, we know that he eventually answered that question correctly because we've already studied Jonah chapter 2. In Jonah chapter 2, we have a psalm of praise in which Jonah says, you did this to me, but it's not a finger of accusation. In in Jonah chapter 2, it's the open hand of gratitude. You did this to me because you loved me. You did this to me to change me. You did this to rescue me. You did this to me out of love, and I am deeply grateful, and I will offer you offerings of praise and gratitude. We know he got there eventually. Now, he didn't write that psalm while he was in the belly of the fish. He wrote it after he had time to process and to grow from this series of events, right? He gets there. We know he gets there. You did this to me as as gratitude, right? But the author stops here with a series of unanswered questions, not just so that we can see that Jonah was left in the tension, but so that we as the readers would be left in the tension, The author has taken us through this incredible journey, this story, and he is now leaving us with the same tension. Do you do well to be angry? Are you really justified in your anger? Now, next week... um, This is the end of the book, but we have one more week in this study. Next week, um, the sermon title is is Amazing Grace. We're going to be going back to to chapter 2, and we're going to be looking specifically at the heart of that psalm. Um, And and now that we've seen Jonah go through this whole journey, I want to bring it back around and and take a look at what he learned and how, man, it just, how it, it is a book infused with hope. It is a book infused with joy, even though it's an incredibly uh, hard story. Um... Because what we find at the heart of this book is a love that never acts in self-interest or in self-protection. It is a love of a God of steadfast love and faithfulness um, who is not bound by sentimentality, who is not bound by a need to appear in a certain way or make us feel a certain thing, but He is bound by His need to transform us so that He might free us. It is a love that is not safe, but it is good. And we're going to be looking at that next week, but we're not there yet. 
I want us to sit this morning in the merciless grace of God. A grace that when we're crying for mercy doesn't give it because it's not what we need. And how do we deal with that? How do we deal with our anger toward God? A couple points. First, we need to be honest about it. We need to be honest about it. I had a friend um, that I took to church a number of years ago, um, uh, just a beautiful young woman, um, uh, dear friend, who life had treated roughly. Um, she had had a number of unfortunate things occur in her life that were the result of the evil of other people, and then it was compounded by bad choices that she made, and, 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 and she had a lot of suffering in her life. Now, she was still a wonderful, wonderful woman and a good friend, but life had treated her harshly. And, um, and I took her, and, and it was at the journey, and Pastor Darren, uh, and I remember this pretty vividly, because I think it was the first time I'd ever heard the point made, but he, he just kind of, in passing, it was one of the points in the sermon, made the point um, that many, many, many people harbor anger at God, um, but don't allow themselves to admit it. They're angry at God, but they would never put it in terminology that is that honest and that blunt. And then he made the comment. He said, in fact, I think all of you are angry at God. And then he just moved on. Um, we went out to lunch, and we were having a conversation, and she was livid. I mean, she was deeply offended that, that Pastor Darren would, would say that she was angry at God. Pastor Darren doesn't know her. How could he judge her? How does he know anything about her? She's not angry at God. How could anyone say she was angry at God? And I'm sitting there going, trying to sympathetically listen, going, man, you are so angry at God. You are so, and, and there's some justifiable anger here, right? Listen, before Jonah can be cured of his anger, he has to admit it. Before God's grace can come in and, and meet Jonah in that place of pain, it has to bring Jonah to a place where he's honest about it. That's what we see over the progression of this chapter. Jonah, Jonah um, is asked, are you angry? And then he turns on his heels, literally and figuratively, and, and heads out into the, like, I'm, we're not talking about this. I'm not going there. This is not what, no, no, we're just not doing this. So God's like, all right, I'm going to turn up the heat, literally and figuratively. I'm going to increase your discomfort. I'm going to increase your suffering. I'm going to increase your pain. Because that's what you need in order to be honest. That's what you need so that you will, you will actually come to a place where you will finally admit, yes, 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 I am angry. And I am justified in my anger. And I'm ready to die, to be cut off from everything that is good in my life, in this world, and in you. I am done. He finally admits. He finally becomes honest with God. Some of you are like, Steve, I'm not angry at God. I'm just angry at life. Who exactly do you think God is? He's capital L life right? Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm, I'm not angry at God. I'm just exhausted with life circumstances. Angry at, it's not turning out the way I want. Really? Who's in control of all that? Who's over it all? See, we have to be honest. 
We have to be honest. Is it possible that you resent God, that you're angry at God because of something He allowed to happen in your life you didn't want to have happen? Is it possible that you're carrying resentment and anger toward God because He allowed some evil to occur that He could have prevented? He had the power. Is it possible that you're carrying some anger and resentment toward God because there's some good that you wanted in your life that you didn't get, but you felt like you deserved? It was withheld from you. See, the first thing to being able to honestly deal with our anger toward God is we have to admit we're angry. Yeah. Yeah. I'm angry. So we have to start with honesty. And secondly, that leads to we need to understand the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger, and there's such a thing as an unrighteous anger. When Jesus came to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, um, Lazarus had died. And in fact, Jesus had stayed away long enough to allow Lazarus to die, right? He knew Lazarus was going to die. He stayed away, allowed him to die, he showed up three days after the death when he would have been entombed and placed in, in, in the, or embalmed and placed in the tomb. And, and, and so this, like, he's dead, 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 right? He's buried. Um, and he shows up and, and we find the shortest verse in the entire Bible, right? Jesus wept. It's an incredibly touching and powerful testimony to the humanity of Christ that he, his friend had died and he entered into that sorrow and wept. And we're like, why would he weep, right? He already knew he was going to die. And, and by the way, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, right? It's one of the great miracles of Jesus' life. And he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he still wept. Why? Because, because it was an incredibly sad thing. His friend had died. And what's, what's fascinating to me is that in the same context where it says that he wept, it says that he became very angry. Now, why would Jesus become angry? Was he angry that Lazarus had died? Was he angry at God for allowing Lazarus to die? Was he, was he angry at, at the people that, that um, were mourning at Lazarus' death? No. You know why he was angry? Because he was looking at this world that was created through him that was created to thrive in the overflow of His goodness, in the presence of His glory, in the thriving of His love. He looked at this world that was meant to be enveloped in the very shalom of God, the peace and the fullness of life of God, and He's confronted once again with the brokenness of this world, the loss of shalom. And in His heart, there is this thing that rises up that says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It is an anger that rises from being, feeling defrauded. This is not the way it was supposed to be. This was not supposed to happen. This is not the way it was designed. Listen to me, anger. Anger is normal. Anger is healthy, and anger can be righteous. Until we allow that anger to fester into a resentment toward God, then it becomes unrighteous. When our anger at our suffering turns into an accusation against God, our anger turns into an unrighteous cancer, 
that will rot our souls. It will feed on our joy. It will destroy our freedom. It will undermine our dignity. Righteous anger needs to be expressed. Unrighteous anger needs to be repented. The anger we feel at the brokenness of this world needs to be expressed, not denied, admitted, not hidden, honestly experienced, not suppressed. Our unrighteous anger, our accusation against God, as if the brokenness of this world were His fault and not ours, that needs to be repented of. See, anger stays healthy as long as it is rooted in humility. As soon as we become prideful in our anger and feel like we can judge God, as soon as we become prideful in our anger and feel like we can judge others, as soon as we become prideful in our anger and feel like we can judge systems or people or God, we now elevate ourselves over our anger and it becomes unrighteous and it will fester into bitterness, resentment, and entitlement. But fruit in humility, it allows us to mourn what is broken. It allows us to be angry at things that shouldn't be, to look at the injustices of the world, the suffering of the world, the loss of the world, and to feel an appropriate anger in response to it without lashing out against God or against others. Your anger needs to be rooted in humility to remain righteous. When we see that, it allows us to set our hope in the right place. We need to set our hope on holiness and not happiness. We need to set our hope on holiness and not happiness. Your hope is what drives everything you do. Your hope is, is your north star by which you navigate all of life. Um, every single day, everything you do is done in hope. And you're like, nah, Steve, I gave up hope long ago. No, you didn't. You're up, you're breathing, you ate something. That's hope. <laughs> People who have genuinely given themselves over to complete despair, hope is the oxygen of the soul. Somebody who has given themselves over to complete despair literally will lay down and die. You cannot exist without hope because you were created for it. It is the oxygen of the soul. You have a hope. Your hope is your North Star. You align everything to reach it. And the problem is we often set happiness as our North Star. I just want to be happy. I, I, just, want, I just want whatever it is I want in order to, uh, to reach the destination and the goal of happiness. And, and we need to be setting holiness as our North Star, not, not happiness. See, we like to live as if Genesis 3 never occurred. In Genesis chapter 3, mankind rebelled against God. Mankind looked at God and said, we will no longer revolve around your glory. We will no longer live in submission to your will. We will no longer, we will no longer order our steps around you. We will no longer be dependent on you. We will be like you. We will provide for ourselves. We will protect ourselves. We will establish our own glory and define our own joy. And in that cosmic treason, we broke shalom with God and broke every uh, form of shalom in the created order. Every, every place of flourishing and, and balance in relationship was disrupted by, by this treason. 
And the result, the result is that we have longings that can be never, never be fully fed. We have desires that can never be fully satisfied here. You do realize that, right? That this place will never be everything you need it to be? That this life will never provide for you everything you want it to provide for you? That you cannot have heaven on earth? You can't have your best life now. You can't because you live in a world where a bomb is blown up, a bomb of sin, and we still feel the, the shock waves of the loss of shalom throughout the created order. This place will never be what you desperately wish it could be. You feel the loss of shalom daily. And if you set as your goal happiness, man, I, I want the shalom of God. I want my best life now. I want, uh, if we really think we can find everything we need for the fullness and the happiness of life right now in this place, if I can just get enough stuff, if I can just get enough experience, if I can just get enough success, if I can just get enough respect, if I can just get enough love, if I can just get enough whatever, if I can just get enough, what's going to end up happening? is we're going to start thinking that happiness is just over the crest of the hill and all I need is a little bit of help. If I could just get a little more, a little momentum, a little tailwind, God would be nice. Just help me out here. What's going to end up happening is we're going to resent what we think God hasn't given us or we're going to resent what God, what He's withheld or, or, or the, 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 the good that He's withheld or the bad that He's given. I would have been happy if you wouldn't have taken that, God. I would have been happy if you would have just provided that, God. I would have been happy if... And we start blaming God because happiness is our goal. And we feel like God is the barrier between us and what we truly want. And that is ridiculous. It's simply not reality. It is a delusional hope. And you'll be left questioning the character of God. How could a good God let bad things happen to good people? And by that, we always mean ourselves. How could God let bad things happen to good people? Y'all, I don't know if you've noticed this, but bad things happen to all people. Have you noticed this? Bad things happen to all people. Every human story after Genesis chapter 3 is a tragedy if you follow it out to its end. Have you not noticed this? Human life would be the ultimate expression of cosmic absurdity. If it were not for God, a God who breaks into this broken world to redeem it and restore it, the only thing that actually gives us hope is not because we think we can actually build a good life, but because there's a God who is life, who has broken into the absurdity of our story, who has broken into the brokenness of this world, that He might undo what was broken, that He might be a God who redeems and restores. A God who entered into the human experience, the incarnation, the taking on of flesh, living the life we should have lived, and then dying the death we deserve to die, and then rising again, that the entire created order might be remade once again as it was meant to be. Listen, our greatest barrier to happiness 
isn't a good that was withheld or a bad that was allowed. Our greatest barrier to happiness is our lack of holiness. True joy, true transcendent joy flows from being what we were created to be. Taking joy, what we were supposed to take joy and being unleashed into the contentment of gratitude, not into the never-ending lust of more and more and more. Our greatest barrier to joy is our lack of holiness. Here's the thing, if God gives us grace without changing our hearts, we will use that grace to justify our bitterness. Just like Jonah did. If God gives you that blessing you're so craving, right? if you'll just give me this thing, then I'll be happy. Then you'll just use that thing to further your animosity toward God and deepen the sickness of the bitterness in your soul. If God doesn't cure the cancer, we will use every available opportunity to help it grow. God, like Aslan, takes out the claws and rips us open, not because he is vicious, but because he's love. Some of you are enduring a scorching east wind in your life. And for some of you, it's a significant life event, a tragedy, a pain. For some of you, honestly, it's just the fine particles of daily life blistering your face with exhaustion. Question is, are you going to rise up and rage against God, curl up in the fetal position and give up hope? Or are you instead, instead of saying, why, God, why, why, start saying, what, God? What are you trying to change? Where are you inviting me to growth? Where am I not giving thanks? Where am I, where am I presuming on your grace instead of giving thanks for your grace? Where am, I, where am I resting on my pride instead of humbly resting in your glory? Where am I competing with you instead of resting on you? Where am I trying to prove myself instead of resting in you? Where? What? What's happening, Lord? Because God never leaves a suffering in your life unredeemed or without purpose. Never. There's no pain in your life that God will not use to deliver you into greater glory and into greater freedom, follower of Christ. And it shouldn't surprise us that we have to walk paths of suffering because everyone in this life does. The difference, though, is that we walk in the shadow of the cross with the one who suffered on our behalf. When we take the path of humility, we never walk alone. We have a God who doesn't stand apart and disjointed and separated from our suffering, but one who knows it intimately because He walked in it. He knows our pain more intimately than we do. He's experienced it to a greater extent than we will ever know. And He walks with us to take us where we can't go on our own, to remove what needs to be removed and to give what we can't earn. And the end result of this journey will be joy and freedom and dignity and power. All right, guys, I'm going to close this in a prayer. We're going to share communion together. Um, 
first let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that uh, that you are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, that you are a God who loves us enough first of all to enter into the suffering to become that the Son of God, the Holy One of the universe, would become, as Isaiah 53 calls you, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. The one despised and the one abused to the point so maligned that even your human face was no longer discernible. You know suffering. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. You know suffering. And I thank you, Lord, that you are willing to work through our pain to bring us into our joy, that you are at work doing things in us as the great physician and the true surgeon to remove what needs to be removed, cleansing what needs to be cleansed, fixing what needs to be fixed so that we can become those who will no longer destroy ourselves in our pride. But we can be set free in the joy of your presence. Spirit, will you comfort those that are facing the exhaustion of that scorching east wind? Will you comfort those that are mourning the loss of some blessing, will you, will you strengthen those who are at the end of their strength? Will you carry them even as you carried your cross to a life that they cannot get on their own, to a joy that this world could never give? You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.